Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thank you for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Bangladesh is one of those countries investors consider a promising developing economy. It's now the 41st biggest economy in the world, according to the UK's Center for Economics and Business Research. But it's not all wine and roses, with one in three people living in Bangladesh below the poverty line, according to the Asian Development Bank. And Bangladesh is also playing host to around three quarters of a million Rohingya refugees from neighboring Myanmar, forced out by Myanmar's military in 2016 and 2017. Now there's a plan to bring the Rohingya back to Myanmar although not in a manner the Rohingya are in support of. Joining the crisis next door to talk about this state of limbo is Dr. Azim Ibrahim, director of the Program on Displacement and Migration at the Center for Global Policy. He is also an adjunct research professor at the Strategic Studies Institute, U.S. Army War College, and authored the book, The Rohingyas, Inside Myanmar's Hidden Genocide. Dr. Ibrahim, thank you very much for joining the crisis next door. Well, thanks so much for having me. First, for our listeners who may not be well-versed in the Rohingya, tell us about their background. This isn't the first time they've been on the receiving end of a crackdown in Myanmar, with the United Nations in 2013 calling the group one of the most persecuted minorities in the world. That's right. Well, the Rohingya, as you said, have been described as one of the most persecuted minorities in the world by the United Nations. They've also been described as the forgotten people uh, the crisis, the persecution of the Rohingya has been going on for over half a century. I mean, so it's been a very long time. And this is not the first time that they have been expelled from Myanmar. You know, this has happened multiple times before. It happens every few years. You know, Myanmar engineers a crisis and uses it as an excuse um, uh, to expel the Rohingya. The animosity against the Rohingya can be dated back uh, just to the Second World War when the Japanese invaded what was at that time British Burma. It was a British colony. The majority Buddhist population stayed um, uh, and supported the Japanese invaders, believing that the uh, Japanese are going to be victorious and this is going to lead to swifter independence. Whereas the Rohingya minority group, uh, they, they stayed loyal to the British colonial masters. So when the country did become independent, there was bad blood between the two people. The Rohingya were seen as not being having supported the Buddhist majority. And this is a minority group within Myanmar. You know, they have a different religion, a different language, a different skin colour. So all of that was used against them. Uh, but despite that, there was relative calm up until 1962 when there was a coup by the military dictator, the, the army chief, General Ne Win. And uh, he implemented, he tried to implement what he called the Burmese Road to Socialism, which was a complete economic disaster. It was a communist manifesto, which didn't do too well. And uh, so he did what a lot of dictators do in that situation when things go wrong, is they try to blame 
uh, they tried to find scapegoats and the Rohingya minority who were already looked at with suspicion fitted the bill perfectly. So Myanmar and uh, Burma on those multiple occasions stripped the Rohingya of their nationalities, their citizenship, uh, of all their rights and expelled them into Bangladesh. So the main accusation against them is that these people are all illegal immigrants from Bangladesh and they should all just go back to Bangladesh. And the manifestation of this is the most recent crisis we've seen just a, a few years ago when over 700,000 Rohingya were once again uh, pushed out from Myanmar into Bangladesh and now they are all living in these overcrowded refugee camps in Bangladesh. How bad are the conditions in these refugee camps? The conditions are extremely bad because these are, this is the, officially the largest refugee camp in the world. Uh, it's over 1.2 million people in this refuge, single refugee camp in Cox Bazar, which is on the coast of Bangladesh. And you have to understand that Bangladesh is a country that's one of the most densely populated and one of the poorest countries in the world. So for them to host this number of people is a huge strain on their economy and on, on their political system. I have been to those camps a, a number of times, uh, and it's quite bizarre because I've travelled to refugee camps all over the world, Jason, and I've never seen anything like this. You can literally climb the highest hill and uh, you look around you and all you see stretched well over to the horizon is just a sea of humanity that's just living in mud and squalor. Um, uh, and so that's just uh, the unfortunate reality that the Rohingya uh, have to put up with. You know, and they, they don't have access to proper uh, sanitation, health care, uh, proper educational facilities and so on. So it's a very, very dire situation for the Rohingya. Just a brutal description, Dr. Ibrahim. Myanmar has agreed to accept several thousand Rohingya refugees back to Rakhine State in Myanmar. Uh, do the refugees have any choice? What conditions await their arrival? Would they even want to go back? Yeah. Well, Myanmar, in multiple occasions, you know, they, they have undertook this exercise a number of times before. You know, they have expelled Rohingya in 93, 92, 93, 98, 2012, 2013. Uh, I met some refugees in, in the camps in Bangladesh that were refugees like almost three, four times over. So they became refugees. They were sent back by Bangladesh and they were forced out again by Myanmar and sent back again. So they were three, four times refugees over. And on each occasion, what Myanmar does is that it starts entering into these negotiations and discussions to how do we take these people back. But the reality is, is that Myanmar has no intention of taking these people back. They have waited half a century trying to get rid of these people, and now they have managed to do it. The probability of them taking them back is, is very, very slim. And the reality is that the Rohingya refugees have got nothing to go back to. You know, as soon as uh, they, when they were being forced out, all the villages were burnt to the ground. The, uh, they were immediately bulldozed. The land has already been redistributed and has been cultivated by local Rakhine Buddhists. And uh, so they got really nothing to go back to. And even the border itself was mined to make sure that the Rohingya don't actually come back. So Myanmar engages in these discussions and these negotiations and treaties and so on. And it's all just a mechanism to buy time until until the world attention moves on and they become a permanent fixture within Bangladesh as they have done in the past. So I don't think Myanmar is sincere at all. And that, is, that view is not just mine, it's also sh shared by very senior UN officials that, uh, you know, uh, including the special rapporteur that Myanmar has, is not sincere in any of these discussions.
Now, we've seen China get involved heavily in this crisis. Uh, China has major investments into the Indian subcontinent, including the China-Myanmar Economic Corridor. It's also been pumping money into Bangladesh. So China wants to see some amount of peace. Could they compel Myanmar to take the Rohingya back? Would, Would Myanmar abide Beijing's wishes in this case? Yeah, China could theoretically compel uh, Myanmar to take the Rohingya back because China has a a huge amount of influence, not just in Myanmar, but also in the whole region. And as you pointed out, you know, that entire region is being significantly de-developed because with Chinese money, not just Myanmar, but other countries in the in the vicinity as well are are uh, now um, uh, beholden to Chinese to Chinese money. Um, so China certainly could, but I don't believe they have a, 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 as it stands at the moment. They have much of an interest to do that either. You know, um, uh, China has wants to keep Myanmar on its side because they have a long term strategic objective in the region. You know, um, uh, when uh, to give you an example, pre- when President Obama was in office. He visited Myanmar on a number of occasions. And for any country, Jason, to get a visit from the President of the United States is a very big deal. And one of the reasons why President Obama visited is because the U.S. felt that as Myanmar opens up, this was one of the most suspicious and one of the most closed societies in the world, almost like North Korea. But as it opens up, it will fall under the sphere of influence of China. And China, which has ambitions to be a global superpower, you know, um, uh, it knows that before it can become a global superpower, it must become a regional power. And that means keeping its regional nuclear rival, India, in check. Access to Myanmar gives uh, China access to the Bay of Bengal and the Indian Ocean. Thus, they can avoid the Straits of Malacca. So you have these geopolitical machinations going on between superpowers, you know, the US, India, China. And then you have this minority group called the Rohingya, which nobody's really ever heard of. So it doesn't really fit into that uh, that equation, you know. So China is not really too concerned about the fate of the Rohingya, and in fact, on the international stage, you know, China has been the biggest obstacle to any sort of uh, accountability uh, to hold Myanmar to any sort of accountability because of the veto that they hold at the Security Council. So I don't think China is very interested in resolving this issue. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the plight of the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh with Dr. Azim Ibrahim, director of the Program on Displacement and Migration at the Center for Global Policy. There doesn't seem to be a lot of attention from global media on the plight of the Rohingya. Do you think there's a double standard in play, given that they are Muslims fleeing a Buddhist majority? I think there's certainly an element of that, because once you mention to people that the Rohingya are a Muslim minority, the reaction of a lot of people as well, there must be something there that they have done. You know, and it's just unfathomable for a lot of people, particularly us that live in the West, to see the Buddhists as being in any form to be violent. You know, the Buddhism that we are familiar with is the Buddhism of the Dalai Lama and these various Hollywood celebrities, you know, and the, these Buddhists don't kill the, they don't kill insects, they don't even have bad thoughts. But the reality is, Jason, is that the Buddhism that they follow in Myanmar is a very different form of Buddhism. They don't recognize the Dalai Lama. Most of them believe that the Dalai Lama is just a fraud. Uh, they follow a form of Buddhism called Theravada Buddhism, which can be very militant in its nature and very violent. So many of them believe the senior Buddhist clergy if you listen to their sermons, they believe that all non-Buddhists are only half-human, and uh, you know, and some of them are very clear 
that uh, you know that the Rohingya are, are have been reincarnated from snakes and insects. So when you're killing them, you're not actually killing humans; you're just killing vermin. So all of this information is out there in the you know in the, in the public domain. And, uh, so so yeah. So we in the West we're not we're not familiar with a lot of these nuances. We just think of Buddhists as being you know these uh, very peaceful and very um, uh, benign. Uh, you know, uh, followers of a, of, a, of a particular faith, but that's just not the reality of of, of it on the ground in Myanmar. There seems to be growing support in areas of Rakhine State inside Myanmar for Muslim free zones in some cities. Is is reconciliation at all possible between the Rohingya and people in Rakhine State? It's very difficult at the moment. I, you know, I really cannot see how that something like that would be possible. Obviously, the, we still have to pursue it irrespective of that, but it seems very difficult because um, uh, the animosity and the hatred towards the Rohingya is just so severe now that uh, you know that uh, any sort of dialogue is very difficult. The the idea that these people are all illegal immigrants that came over from Bangladesh, which does not stand up to any historical scrutiny whatsoever, but has that has now become so embedded in the psyche of people in Myanmar, not just in Rakhine State, but also all over the country, that any sort of uh, discussions of dialogue are simply not entertained in any way. In fact, one cannot even use the word Rohingya if you're in Myanmar, they do not allow you to use the word Rohingya. If you recall, the Pope visited uh, Myanmar last year, and even he was warned not to say the word Rohingya, otherwise there would be a backlash against the Catholics in Myanmar. And that's like, precisely what he did. He didn't say the word whilst he was there. And all US, uh, various US senators and members of Congress have told me the same thing, that they were warned that if you say the word Rohingya, all your meetings will be cancelled and the trip will be over. Um, uh, so in that kind of environment, you know, to have some any sort of dialogue with the Rohingya when they don't even recognize a word is going to be extremely difficult. Hard to find a starting point, that's for sure. Uh, Dr. Ibrahim, you pointed out the density of the population of Bangladesh. How has the government in Dhaka treated the Rohingya? How does the average Bangladeshi feel about the presence of the Rohingya camps? You know, the government of Bangladesh, obviously, uh, very suddenly they were faced with this huge uh, problem of having hundreds of thousands of people poured into their country and they behaved in a very magnanimous manner. You know, they behaved in an absolutely stellar fashion in terms of catering for those individuals, you know, Bangladesh being a, a very poor country themselves. So they did what they could, I believe, considering the circumstances to allow those refugees in and build those camps. So entire regions of forest were, were demolished to build those camps in this uh, in the Cox Bazaar area. But as you can appreciate, you know, um, uh, the goodwill that's um, uh, usually extended to refugees in such a situation will eventually in all circumstances turns to resentment because i like i said i visited that region and some of the local population are equally as poor as these refugees it's hard to imagine but some of the local population are are equally as destitute and all they are now seeing is these rohingya living on handouts from the world food program and from the united nations and their argument is that well look we're equally as poor but we're not entitled to any of this aid and any of these handouts so you know why are these people getting it they've overstayed their welcome so the government of bangladesh even though they behaved in a stellar fashion you know they are also getting uh, tired and they are trying to find a solution to try to get the rohingya out of their out of their country and this was a an election manifesto promised by the prime minister 
uh, in the last election, which was just months ago, that uh, these people, the Rohingya, will not become a permanent burden on Bangladesh. You know, the Rohingya are costing uh, $900 million a year, and some of that money is raised from the international community, and, but much of it is also has to be provided by by Bangladesh. So you can imagine there's also uh, donor fatigue in the international community. There's no shortage of crises that um, uh, that uh, that demand attention of Western donor countries. So yeah, so Bangladesh is in a very precarious situation and is, is desperately trying to figure a way how to get out of it. Myanmar's latest crackdown against the Rohingya came after the militant Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army attacked government security positions in 2017. What's the strength of ARSA? Are they still active? Are they in these camps and are they recruiting in those camps in order for potential conflict, whether within Myanmar or possibly with Bangladeshi forces? Yeah, well, this this was the trigger that forced the Myanmar authorities to undertake this action, even though, you know, um, uh, there was considerable evidence that Myanmar was preparing for an offensive in that region uh, prior to this, but it was an attack by ARSA, the militant group, uh, you know, which killed a, about half a dozen security officials, border officials, which then led the Myanmar military to completely clamp down in that uh, that entire region. Uh, ARSA is a very interesting entity, yeah, because they very they've been silent for a very long time, and uh, and only recently they've issued a couple of statements and so on, and nobody's really sure. How, um, uh, how official those statements are. But it's very interesting to me, Jason, because, you know, I've been following this stuff. You know, militant groups are in the globe for quite some time, and I've watched quite a few of those uh, extremist videos that they produce. And in all the videos, it's the same kind of format. You know, you'll have one individual, usually with his face covered, reading out a statement. They'll have the flag at the back or their symbols, and they'll be surrounded by people holding weaponry, you know, the rocket launchers and Kalashnikovs and all sorts of uh, sophisticated machine guns and so on. And the entire purpose of these videos is to demonstrate strength and demonstrate power. And if you look at the ARSA videos, you know, they're a little bit different. You have one or two guys holding Kalashnikovs. The rest of them have got knives and bamboo sticks. And uh, most of them are bare feet. They don't have shoes. And other ones are just wearing sandals. So I, I don't suspect that they're really that significant. As a, as a military or strategic threat uh, to Myanmar. But the interesting thing is, is that, you know, um, uh, one of the arguments I made in, uh, in a paper that I wrote recently is that the, 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 the mechanism by which the Myanmar military has uh, clamped down on the Rohingya, uh, as, you know, using ARSA as an excuse, is ex exactly the same technique that they're now using against other minority groups uh, in the Rakhine state and around Myanmar. You know, so they're using the same techniques and strategy against Christian minorities and other minorities like the Kareem, the Kashen and the and the Shan. And so we've had an increase in the in the body count because an emboldened military now believes that they have managed to get away with the genocide against the Rohingya and with very little uh, you know repercussions or consequences. So they are now extending that to other minorities. So we will not. This this is not the end of it. You know, we will see a continuation of this for quite some time by the looks of it. How important is this case of the Rohingya for refugees elsewhere and and ethnic minorities elsewhere in the world? With nationalism on the rise around the globe, could inaction further embolden oppression of those minority groups or even ethnic cleansing or genocide? 
Well, this is precisely it. You've hit the nail on the head. You know, this is this. You know, the fact that Myanmar has gotten away with this has has emboldened their military uh, to what they to pursue their policy of creating a, a pure Burma Buddhist national state, which has always been their ambition. So they're forcing out other minorities, and countries around the region are obviously and uh, are obviously looking at this and saying, well, the, the only thing you really need to do, and uh, is to have a, a superpower. That's got a member. That's a member of the Security Council that can then subsequently veto every single uh, resolution that comes uh, comes you know thereafter to investigate or to um, uh, to to punish you for your actions. And Myanmar has that in China. You know, China's uh, been a, a, a defender of Myanmar. So this sends this sends a very very poor signal to regimes and uh, despots around the globe in terms of what what you can do and what you can get away with so i i i won't be surprised if we see we start seeing repeated actions of this dr ibrahim the bangladeshis don't want the rohingya myanmar doesn't want the rohingya back where do the rohingya go who stands up for the rohingya well, this is one of the unfortunate realities. You know, there is a reason why they're known as a forgotten people because they really are right at the bottom of the ladder. You know, um, uh, they, they have no no country in the world wants them. No country in the world is uh, lobbying for them, and no country really wants to. You know, is pushing to have a to to create some sort of long term solution. The unfortunate reality is, is Jason. You know, I suspect that the majority of the Rohingya will certainly be remaining in Bangladesh over the long term, which is why we need to start, the international community really needs to start thinking of mechanisms by which to heavily incentivize Bangladesh to start absorbing some of these refugees into their own population. And this is not going to be an easy thing. As I said, Bangladesh is already one of the most densely populated countries in the world. You know, But this is the reality, is that Myanmar um, uh, does not want them, will not take them back. You know, I, I do believe that there has to be some sort of mechanism by which to hold Myanmar to account to um, uh, to ensure that uh, the architects of this genocide are sufficiently punished. But at the same time, we also have to be realistic to say that uh, the probability of them going back is, is quite slim. So we have to figure out ways in which the Rohingya can be distributed throughout the region and uh, not just Bangladesh, but the international community should therefore work together to incentivize Bangladesh to absorb uh, as many of them as they can into their own population. Certainly a bleak future for the Rohingya in the near term. Dr. Ibrahim, thank you very much for taking the time to join me here on The Crisis Next Door. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. My guest today has been Dr. Azim Ibrahim, Director of the Program on Displacement and Migration at the Center for Global Policy. He is also an adjunct research professor at the Strategic Studies Institute, U.S. Army War College, and authored the book, The Rohingyas, Inside Myanmar's Hidden Genocide. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.